Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Armed with only what she calls poor kid work ethic, Brandy Carlisle spent the early part of her life fighting her parents' politics, the church, and fighting to be heard while singing over belligerent drunks in crowded bars. Brandy's voice demands attention. As you might recall hearing in our episode with Jack White and Brendan Benson, her 2019 Grammy performance of her song, The Joke, blew even her most critical of peers away. But long before that, she was already making a name for herself on stages across the Pacific Northwest, where she was raised and now lives with her twin bandmates, she simply calls The Twins. And since then, she's released six albums, formed The High Women with Maren Morris and Amanda Shires, and has just generally captured the attention of the music world. In her chat with Rick, she recounts her tumultuous past and talks about how she's learned to pick her battles over her long career. And then there's the night she witnessed a miracle at Joni Mitchell's house. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right. Enjoy the episode. Here's Rick Rubin and Brandy Carlisle from Shangri-La. I remember the first time I saw you, and I don't remember how it worked out that you were on the show that I saw you at. But I saw you at a place called the Wilshire Ebel Theater. Yeah. And you were opening for James Taylor. And I was there to see James Taylor. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know you. 
And I don't even think I stayed to watch James Taylor after I saw you. I was so blown away. And I remember you got a standing ovation as an as an unknown opening act. Yeah. I remember I, it was like it was it was ridiculous. Yeah. It was really a ridiculous performance. And the people that that had come to see it, like um, from Columbia Records and stuff, they told me the next day. They said, "God, you know, there was no way backstage." at that show but on the stage and there was no intermission between me and James and James came out to play his first song and the whole theater saw you walk backstage during fire and rain and they were like Rick Rubin's going back there we gotta sign this girl <laughs> he sees something and, and when he sees something it it's real and uh, you know it was real it really I really don't think you understand how much of, it, of an impact you um, made in that sense, you know. Wow. Well, happy to be of service. Had no <laughs> yeah. idea, but happy to be of service. Great. Thank you, sir. But you actually saw me way earlier than that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Do you want to know? Yeah, please. So um, I'm writing a book, and I'm not sure why I'm doing it, but there's a whole lot about you in there. Wow. Because um, I, I got asked to open for a kid, a guy called Johnny Lang in Seattle, and a guy called Brendan Mendoza was in the audience. Yeah. And I was only maybe 19. Yeah. I'm 39 now, so it was a long time ago. Yeah. Brendan Mendoza says I worked for a guy called Rick Rubin. Yeah. He was a young A&R guy who worked mm -hmm. at, at American Recordings. Yeah. And he flew me to L.A. to play for you at uh, Swing House. I have and, no recollection of that. Well, I did because it was a make or break moment in my life that was course and this is an interesting thing i've learned since i i gained this notoriety for being an artist how a public person can have uh such an impact on on a on an on a other person's life without even really knowing you know and it's just it's one of the inconsequential things but to me it was a uh, an enormous deal because i was being flown there to play for you and i had got really sick like uh laryngitis and I have this terrible paradoxical allergy to cough medicine that I didn't know about. And I took uh, cough medicine and I started having a neurological reaction to it. I had uh, involuntary muscle spasms in my face and hands. And I'm sitting there trying to play my showcase for you. And I can't remember the words and my fingers won't press down on the strings to play the chords. And I had muscle twitches in my jaw and I just felt like my life was ending. And you interrupted my showcase and you said, is there something about you today that's making you not be yourself? And I said, yeah, I'm really sick and I think I'm having an allergic reaction to this cough medication. And you said, well, why don't you go home and get better and then come back and do this again? Wow. And I was like, yeah, right. Yeah, fucking right. I know I'm never going to get a chance to come back here and play for you again. And I went I home. no recollection. It's unbelievable. It's a great story. I went home thinking I'd blown it, and you brought me back two weeks later. And I was better, and I was really ready, and I played for you at Swing House, and I, it's like I remember what I was wearing, I remember everything, and the very first song I played for you was a song called Shadow on the Wall. And I had showcased for just about every record label, and <clears throat> everyone passed. Yeah. And some people didn't even wait till I was finished singing a song before they'd leave the room. And I finished that song... And you put your hand up and you were sitting just like that. And you said, that's a really amazing song. Will you play it again? And I knew right then that I was going to make it. 
I knew it. I was like, he wants me to play it again. Unbelievable. And I played it again and it ended and you said, why don't you just play it one more time? <laughs> really? Yeah, Amazing. And I played it again. And I played you two more songs and you had me play those songs again. And by the time it had ended, I'd played three songs seven or eight times. And we had a conversation. You told me you'd just seen Damien Rice. Yeah. And um, Johnny Cash was still alive. Yes. And uh, you said that you thought we would know each other and work together down the road. Amazing. And word spread about that. And, um, you know, it was looking like I was going to sign to American for a long time. But um, I remember that. And yeah. I remember what happened. I remember I was uh, moving from one label to another. You were in total chaos yeah. at the moment. I yeah. was moving from one label to another. And I remember that at the new label, whereas my new distributor was going to be Warner Brothers. Yeah. And I said, and this is the first act that we're going to do. And I remember the Warner Brothers people didn't like, didn't get it and didn't like it. Yeah. And I remember I couldn't believe it. It's like, she's incredible. She's incredible. No one got it. You were the first one, Rick, to ever get it. You were the first one to ever say, play that again. And so I'll never forget it. And, um, you know, that James Taylor show that you were at, it made me look so cool. Everybody talked about it for no, a year. Are you after sure that. that the James Taylor was after the Swing House? Yeah. I yeah. Don't I don't remember the Swing House, but I definitely remember the James Taylor because I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Well, your life was much different than my life was at the time, wasn't it? You know. No, I trust you a hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not questioning what you're saying. I'm just telling you. I don't remember it. Yeah, I bet. It was you were so beloved and just popular and and um, such an inspiration to me. Yeah. Incredible. And you brought me back. You gave me a, a second chance. And the, at the James Taylor show, also Columbia Records was there. And that's when I got my deal with Columbia Records and made my first album. Amazing. Yeah. And then I remember when I was at Columbia for a little while, we, we worked together on... Give Up the Ghost. Whatever, Yeah, whatever album you were working on at the time. Yeah. And I remember it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. That's still my favorite album, actually. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. It was a big emotional, hard time for me in my life. I, I don't like who I was really at that time, but um, I like the album. Yeah, I remember. I just remember the power in the vocals was off the chart, like stunning. Yeah, because you had me singing into a SM7, right? Is that what they're called? I microphone? Re- I don't remember. Yeah, and <laughs> every other microphone I'd ever sang into, I would distort. Uh, so the engineer or the producer would ask me to sing differently. Yeah. I end up do a little mic control. Yeah. And it, it messed with my performance emotionally. So I never sounded on an album like I did live until that album. Because, because we use the same mic you would use live because yeah. you sounded good live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you Which were just, it seems like it would be obvious, no? It seems like it would be obvious, but uh, apparently it's only obvious to you. <laughs> <laughs> so since then, how many albums have you made? Um, seven. Seven as an artist. Yes. And the last one mm-hmm. was uh, maybe your most well-received of the batch, which is unusual mm-hmm. in today's world because mm-hmm. normally first couple of albums tend to do really good and then people fade away mm-hmm. and you've only kind of continued to build over the seven over the seven albums. Yeah. Yeah, because of that. But some of it has to do with just sort of like a cultural undertone, like where we are in the world right now and the the perspective that the album was written 
from. I think it gave people comfort in a way that it resonated sort of beyond, I think, me as an artist and more into the sort of cultural zeitgeist of like. I wonder if that's true. I think you're selling yourself short. Do you think? <laughs> yes. I don't know. I think it belongs to the moment, but maybe. Well, may, maybe, it belo- yes, it belongs to the moment. And okay. yes, the moment plays a role. Hmm. But the reason people like it is because you're great. <laughs> and that's the real reason. <laughs> Thank you. And if, I will receive that. And if you Thank weren't you. great and it was right in the moment, it wouldn't matter at all. And nobody would notice. <laughs> it's because it's great. So. Thank you. Tell me about um, your situation growing up. Well. Seattle? Seattle, just outside of Seattle. Um, I started out living in the airport town outside of Seattle, SeaTac, Burien area. We moved out to a single wide trailer in the middle of the country um, when I started fifth grade. And up until that point, we were only allowed to listen to like classic country and western music. It's what my mother sang and her father and big country music family. Where were they from? Oklahoma. Um, How and did they then, end up in Seattle? Well, they went up north. So Oklahoma, both sides of the family were actually from Oklahoma. And some of them just migrated around, you know, the country. My uh, great-grandparents lived in an RV. And they just toured around following bluegrass festivals, the really small ones, you know. So it was, it was always a musical family. Yeah, yeah, a musical family without us really even knowing we were a musical family. We thought all families were musical families. So everybody played? Everybody played something or supported it in some way. Mm-hmm. And then my mother's side of the family went from there to up north between Fargo and Minneapolis, a place called Wabin, northern Minnesota. They started the whole it's not southern, it's western thing about country music and mm-hmm. moved west. And um, so country music was our family's thing. And I got out to the country for the first time and uh, started to feel weird, started to feel weird and gay. (laughs) And I picked up a fifth grade book report on a kid called Ryan White, who died of AIDS in 1991. He was a hemophiliac. And when he was diagnosed with HIV, the church tried to politicize him uh, and get him to speak out against gay men and, and uh, imply that it was a disease that was created by, by gay men. And in the book, he was befriended by a guy called Elton John. And I saw this book report as a departure from my family in a weird way. Their politics, um, something was starting to become clear about my sexuality because I was 11. And um, this guy Elton John seemed really special to me. So I went to the King County Library and I checked out two CDs, Tumbleweed Connection, and the one here and there that had Skyline Pigeon on it because he sang it at this kid's funeral. And I loved that boy um, and wrote this big book report on him. And and, uh, and I checked out a biography by, by Philip Norman, and I got into David Bowie via Elton John and also Queen. I became fascinated with Freddie Mercury, mm-hmm. uh, George Michael, U2, and the Beatles, all in this on this biography that I had read. And I started dressing different, talking different, arguing politics with my dad, and started liking a different kind of music and started standing out and becoming an artist. And it was hard. It was hard on my parents spiritually, politically. It was hard because we were poor and I was already weird enough at school. 
But that's when I started to take a turn away from just playing the spoons and singing at family jams to really wanting to be an artist. And then when did you start singing? What was your first professional experience singing? We had these auditions at this place called the Northwest Grand Ole Opry, where uh, my mom's dad was the kind of patriarch, family, yodeling, very glamorous, amazing man. Uh, he died really young of Lou Gehrig's disease, actually. He was only 50. And with the money he left, um, which was not much, it was just enough for my mom to buy a little PA system, and she decided to start doing music for real because he was gone and she wanted to do something to heal herself. And um, she started doing auditions. And she took me with, a, with her to an audition at a place called the Northwest Grand Ole Opry, and I got to audition too. And we both made it. And uh, the first song I sang was Tennessee Flat Top Box by Johnny Cash. Second one was San Antonio Stroll by Tanny Tucker. And I started singing on Friday and Saturday nights, rehearsals on Wednesdays. How old were you at this time? Eight. Eight. I did that till I was like 13 or 14. Wow. Also sang in bars and contests and anywhere I could sing. And I sang full time. Yeah. Um, and when I was 14, I started singing background vocals for an Elvis impersonator. Learned how to play guitar around 15 or 16 and writing songs and started my own bands. And by the time I was 20, I came to L.A. and played for you. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> you were ready. <laughs> well, I don't think I was ready, actually, but I was on I was on one of the steps for sure. Well, the fact that you did all of the the fact that you'd played in front of audiences for so long mm -hmm. is something so few new musicians have. Yes. You know, it's it's a it's very few and far between that you see people who've done years of playing in front of people before we get to see them. Mhm. Mm and there's a there's an experience that comes there is a, a level of expertise from that experience that you can't create any other way by doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't get you can't get years of practice without years. <laughs> no, and the main thing you can't get is you can't get over your te television understanding that just because you're performing, an audience should listen to you. That's the worst part. That's the most soul destroying thing for a new artist that doesn't have busking or bar experience. Is that they don't understand that you actually have to earn the other person's attention. And it can be really hard work. And sometimes they can be assholes and sometimes they can be drunk or they can be walking past you to work. And you have to figure out what it is that's going to make them stop. Put down the beer for even 20 seconds or stop where they're going and take out a buck and throw it in your guitar case. Like to any kid, anybody that's just starting out music, I so strongly recommend busking. If you can't get a gig in a bar, busk. Try to figure out what it is that you do with your voice or with your words or your body that makes someone stop. I would say that it goes for everything even beyond music. It's like the the idea that we're just naturally going to be accepted yeah. as great mm -hmm. doesn't really happen. Like no. you, you, you need to go out and prove it. Yeah, <laughs> that's real life. Yeah. So what were some of the methods you would use to get people to stop and pay attention? I figured out early on that for me, it was volume and dynamics. Sometimes if I couldn't get a bar to quiet down, I would stop playing my guitar and start screaming. Or I would mute my guitar and start whispering. Yeah. 
um, just depended on how they were reacting, you know. And I would just try and give them what I thought they needed. And it yes. became it came with trying to learn to be a musical empath, reading a room, trying to give the people what they want. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I've started to understand that it's not a glitzy or a silly thing to be an entertainer. You know, it, it's, there's artistry in it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just more of a performance. It's a different kind of art, but it's, it's all art. It's all, it's all making something beautiful and sharing it with people. Yeah. We'll be right back with Rick and Brandy Carlisle after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch Subject to credit approval, terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Rick and Brandy Carlisle. Here's Brandy singing a song from her latest album, By the Way, I Forgive You. It's called, this, is, uh, this song's called The Mother. It's about, um, it's about my daughter, uh, Evangeline, 
and it's about my path into um, motherhood and how twisted and rocky and bumpy it was and how even long after she was here, I wasn't sure I made, made the right decision. Wow. And um, it's hard for people to admit that they feel that way. But I wanted to write a song about it because once I did admit it, it's like it opened me up to falling in love with her in my own time. And uh, it's a complicated thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, gay domesticity is, is a complicated and sort of new thing. And there's not a lot of pioneering books about it. So I wrote this song. Beautiful. Tell me about um, your songwriting process. Is there any, would you say it follows any typical methods or different every time? It's really changed as I've gotten older. I write a lot less songs now. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes I will write like one every two years. Really? And it feels like it's going away. But it never does. And if I always just trust that it won't go away, then it comes back. Do you think it's because you're on the road so much? No. I think it's because I've I've transformed as, as an artist to be um, something other than, than a songwriter, than just a songwriter. It's kind of like an element of who I think I am now, but... I'm just as happy to sing songs that the twins have written, particularly because we live together. You know, we all live together now on the same property and we're, we're married to each other's siblings and we have um, babies that all go to school and meet up every morning at the same bus stop. And so much has changed in the last 20 years. But um, when they write a song and they, and they bring it through to me and it's about our friend taking his own life or it's about, you know, one of our dads in rehab i know what it's about and it it could have been written by me and so i still get choked up and i get a lump in my throat when i'm singing and it feels like it came from my soul because we're waking up and looking out the same windows every day so i don't need to be writing a song really to feel moved by interpreting one but when i do i'm much much more spiritually open about having it influenced than i was when i was younger Mm -hmm. and it's it always comes from a more honest place, which is interesting because I think because I never had any commercial success per se, mm-hmm. I'm not chasing it. Yes, which is super healthy. Thank, thank God. Thank <laughs> you. It really, it really worked out because had something really exploded early on, mm-hmm. and then there was always this sort of trying to get back to that place, it, it would have undermined the whole thing. Yeah, you're right. I really feel like that, and I've observed that now, um, and I don't want it. I've never wanted it. It's not really what I'm... I'm not cut out for that, you know? And you've had a a great life doing what you do on your own terms. Yeah. You sing the songs you want to sing. You sing them the way you want to sing them. Exactly. And I live with my brothers, and... I've got my wife and I've got my babies and I've got all the things I want. You know, I've got a four-wheeler and a fishing boat and I'm fine. I can remember, I won't say the name of the artist, but a uh, a very well-known pop star who's a big fan of yours. I don't know if you know, she, I don't know if you know her, but <clears throat> she told me, she was so blown away by you and she made music that was very manufactured pop. And it was like, I was surprised that she liked you because the music she made was so different. And she said, well, if I could do what I want, I would do what Brandy does, but I can't. I'm in this machine and I have to sing this garbage. And literally, 
it was like, wow. that's what I want to do. She's doing it. I don't get to do that. I just get to make these pop records. Yeah. There's a time I felt that way about her, whoever she is. Yeah. You know, if I could do what I want, I would be famous. Yeah. And I would, I would be, uh, rich and I wouldn't be so tired and I wouldn't be taking steroids and I wouldn't be living in this van, you know, but now I'm just, I'm just so glad that, 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 that never happened to me. And it's no, no insult because I love a rock star like anybody else loves a rock star. God, I mean, I think fame's a beautiful thing. It's just not my thing. It's also the path that suits us often finds us. You know, we, we may be looking for something else. You're so right. We find the path we belong on and um, yeah. and it feels good. Like, you know, it's like to some degree, it's like we're, we're characters in this movie and we have ideas of what we want the next scene to be, yeah. but we don't get to control that. And do you think sometimes when we think we're manifesting it, that maybe we're just innately knowing it's ahead of us? It could be. Yeah. It could be. I don't know, actually. It could be. It could be one way. That, and whether it, whether it's us manifesting it or whether it's a premonition of what's ha- what's to come, doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, either way, it's cool to have that feeling of like, oh, I feel like this is going to happen and then it happens. It makes the experience of living more fun. Like, like you get to feel like, wow, wow, I'm really in this. I'm in this life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm open to it. Yeah. To the twists and turns, you know. It's hard sometimes when the thing that comes up is something that uh, is really painful. That's the first thing I thought when I said that too, yeah. Yeah, it's hard when the thing that comes up is really painful to to know, wow, like watching it in the movie and wow, our our hero just got into trouble in that scene. I wonder how he's going to get out of this. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like like to, to be able to remove ourselves from the emotion in it. Mm Mm-hmm and be trusting that the universe is on our side. Yeah. I mean, the big thing for me is I just made the decision in my um, very, like right around the time I turned 30, in my early 30s, to stop being in fights. You know? Not to stop standing up for myself. Yeah. But to stop being in fights is actually much more um, proactive. I don't want to say aggressive, because it's not aggressive, but... It's it's much stronger to stop being in fights. What were what were some of the things that you might have fought over in the past? Oh God, you name it, man! I've been fighting since I was a little kid. Just fighting in the schoolyard, fighting people, fighting in relationships, fighting God, fighting the church, fighting over politics, fighting over music, fighting producers. You know, every record I made ended in me falling out with the producer. All every time. And what do you think the, um, what do you think was underneath it? Poor kid work ethic, um, a damage and chaos, and also passion, you know, and like also a little bit of it is being gay and kind of growing up in the church and, and like having to fight for your actual eternity, you know, and just the dignity of, of, um, showing up every day and, and being who you are when no one wants you to. And you take that into places that are inappropriate. But it was appropriate in in those scenarios, mm-hmm. you know. And it just took falling in love and Saturn return to kind of make me rise above myself a little bit and see it. Beautiful. 
So tell me, how was the last album that you made different than the ones that came before it? I mean, I was different. Um, we made this album with Dave Cobb and Shooter Jennings. And Shooter Jennings is like a spirit animal person that is like in my life to just remind me not to judge people, remind me not to be uptight. And Dave Cobb was a person that scared me. And I felt like his his talent was intimidating and his audacity was intimidating and his guileless authority was intimidating. And I had only made two, I made two self-produced records. Um, and I wasn't really planning on going into the studio with a, with a influential producer. And, uh, I was trying to put together an album for, um, War Child to benefit refugee kids, kids mostly from Syria and camps in Iraq and Jordan. And I called, uh, I got Dolly Parton to do my song, The Story. Incredible. It was so cool, man. But she wanted us to record a track, and I had no idea really what to do. And I had to kind of admit my limitations. And I thought about Dave Cobb because I was getting ready to drive through Nashville. And I just knew that he had a handle on it. And so I called him up, and I was like, do you have time to do this? And he's like, no, I have absolutely zero time, but I will do this in the middle of the night for you because my wife is a refugee. And so we pulled our bus into RCA Studios in the middle of the night, and he played Wichita Linemen in the ghetto, and then we recorded the story for Dolly Parton. I left there totally mind-blown, thinking I never wanted to work with Dave Cobb, but that I was really impressed. Yes. And Shooter and I were going to work together, and we got to talking about it, and he said, I think you should give Dave a second thought. He's my brother. And he loves you, and we should really think about this. So I was like, ready for a radical change in my life. The twins are ready for radical change in their lives. And um, we went in, and everything was set up. We didn't get sounds or anything. We got lunch, sat in the corner, we listened to some records. And he said, so what do you want to play? And we're like, well, we'll play you this song, you know. And we just played it for him, but he recorded it. And he's like, well, we got our first track. And I was like, wow, this is this is different. You know, how does it even sound? I got sounds before you got here. Don't worry about it. And uh, the whole record was that way. Beautiful. Done in two weeks. Bursting into tears the whole time. Emotional breakdowns. Um, digging deep. Mining of the soul. New way that we had never done it before. And uh, I, knew, I knew it was different. What's interesting about that is it sounds like by him taking care of the production and everything else, you got to really dive into being the artist. You're right. And not having to wear multiple hats and completely be in the music. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, now I want to do it again. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah, there's, there's also, it's like what we talked about earlier, the idea that... Um, sometimes it's helpful to have someone outside who really likes you... <laughs> You know, it's yeah. really helpful. Yeah, that it's was helpful. big. That was really big. And, and he just made me feel like he really liked my voice. Yeah. You know, yeah. I have been in the studio with a lot of people that didn't like my voice. Yeah. And, um, of course, there's affectation. And, of course, there's lots of reasons for that. But I just think that, like, that's part of making music that isn't manufactured is that part of, like, growing as an artist I think is 
developing and shedding affectation. Yes. You can't strip a young person of the affectation. They have to decide to shed the affectation. And God, it could take a long time. Yeah. You know, it took me a and long time. It, it happens naturally and it mm -hmm. only it happens when it wants to happen. It's not anything that can be forced. Mm. If you pull off the affectation before it comes off, we don't really know what's underneath. <laughs> that's so true. I've never heard it said that way before, but that's exactly why you can't do it. Yeah. 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 It comes from the person not knowing who they are yet. So this is the the crutch or the training wheels. To, till I get to be who I am, I'm gonna use. I'm gonna go through this vehicle. Yeah. The last time I saw you play was with the Avit Brothers at Madison Square Garden. Right. Which was incredible. It was an incredible <laughs> night. Both seeing, both seeing you and them there yeah. was a place where I used to see you know big concerts when I was a little kid. It was a real uh, thrill for me. Oh, man, I love those boys. Aren't they great? I mean. It's more than that. I just feel like we just the world just needs them in a big, big way, and I need them. And and um, yeah. Did you know Scott painted me for the cover of my album? By I the way, not. I forgive you. I did not. But that makes now that you say it. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. He did. And this is how gay I am. I have such a crush on Scott. I think Scott is one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And yes. I went to his house by myself in North Carolina to set for him and be painted. And I had to rent my very first car. I never rented a car all by, all by myself. And I went out there and I spent the entire day with Scott inside of a box that he created out of a sheet and some cardboard and the little light coming in at the top. And he was like this close to my face all day. And I was thinking, I feel nothing around this gorgeous specimen of, specimen of a man. Like, this is how gay I actually am, because he's so <laughs> handsome. And um, I was so nervous to be, like, he's, of course, married father. I'm married and a mother, but I just love him. But he's one of those people where he's as beautiful of a person as he is to look at. Like he's, he gets he's more just, and more beautiful because of exactly that. Yeah, his, it's we, we see him beautiful because it's his soul shining through. You're exactly right. Yeah. And Seth is the same way. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing and all those people. fellas and their parents and their wives and their kids. It's all the same thing. There's a big love light shining out in North Carolina because of them. Yeah. I always feel like any chance I get to be around them improves my life. Do you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, a friend of mine made uh, the documentary, May It Last, Judd Apatow. Yeah. Um, a lot of it here. A lot of it here and he's a um he works in comedy mm -hmm. and most of the people that we know in the comedy world tend to be dysfunctional it's the nature of the <laughs> reason you find yourself in comedy comes out of dysfunction mm -hmm. and um and i was laughing with with judd because he was saying what a great experience it was making this and how great it was to be around those people and i said you know most of the people we know are insane this is what like we don't know any like nice people. Mm -hmm. They're the only nice people I know. <laughs> That's how I feel too. It's like they're, you can't believe that anyone is like this. Yeah, they're, but they are. It's real. Yeah, and you keep thinking you're waiting for the rug to get pulled. You're like, when I turn my back, you're going to do something weird. But they don't. No. No, it's an incredible family. I don't know how it how it happened. I remember I asked their dad when I met their dad the first time. I said, how did, what did you do 
for these people to exist like this in the world. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, I back them. I back them no matter what. I mm. back them. If, if somebody came and told me that one of the boys killed somebody, I would say, I guess somebody needed some killing. <laughs> that is profound. Yeah. That's some parenting advice right there. Unconditional love. Wow. We'll be right back with the rest of Rick's interview with Brandy Carlisle. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Morris, Sue Brewer, and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Brandy Carlisle. The night before this interview, Brandy performed Joni Mitchell's classic album, Blue, 
in its entirety at LA's Disney Concert Hall. She talked to Rick about how she first discovered Joni Mitchell's music. I was really late to the game on Joni Mitchell, and there's a whole thing about it that I won't go into, but when I did like deep dive, I made up for lost time in a really big way, and I became obsessed with the album Blue. I learned the entire thing. It was like my life. And then I got into Court and Spark. How long ago was this? So eight and a half, almost nine years ago. Skipped over for the roses, went straight to Court and Spark, and then went back to Song for Seagull, all the way into Ladies of the Canyon, Blue, For the Roses, Court and Spark, Hissing of Summer Lawns, Hajira, which is now my favorite Joni Mitchell album, all the way up to Shine. So her 75th birthday party, which is almost a year ago to the day, <clears throat> they asked a lot of really cool people to come and tribute her by singing songs. And I wanted to do it so bad. I begged and begged and begged, and they wouldn't let me do it. And they told me no, and it was full. And but I just kept writing letters, and I kept digging to find out other people that were connected to it, and then writing them letters. And, you know, mom and dad said no, so I was asking all the aunties and uncles. And basically... Because Chris Christofferson got asked to do a case of you, and I've been helping Chris a little bit on stage with his memory and his ability to kind of deliver a live performance that's not his own, like his own lyrics. He can do it with a teleprompter, but outside of that, he struggles with simple things like microphone placement and plugging in his guitar and stuff. So I've been kind of like, his wife says, like, she can help him to the edge of the stage, but after that, you know. So I stepped in a bunch of times to, to be with Chris because he's still so special. And um, so he got asked to do a case of you. So I was able to help him do that. And then they gave me Down to You from Court and Spark. So I did it. And uh, I found it really transformative. And um, I brought this picture to have signed by Joni. And it was my, my wife, Catherine. It's like her one job to get it signed. And she didn't do it. She was a PA for Paul McCartney for like 10 years. So she's good at reading a room you know she just knew it wasn't appropriate but I was so moved by the night I said I'm going to cover the entire Joni Mitchell Blue album at uh, Disney Hall in LA a year from now and uh, she said all right and she called Joni's assistant and she said well can I get this picture signed for Brandy for Christmas as a surprise and they said yeah bring it by the house and and uh you know, come on up and we'll get we'll get it signed. And so Catherine went by the house, but Joni invited her in and wound up sitting at the table with her and having a long talk about nature and Canada and they had they kind of had a friendship thing and Joni said, Well, you know, anytime you you and your wife want to get together and grab a bite to eat, you know, we can't. And after the Grammys, Joni reached out and she took me out to dinner and Catherine and um, we had this amazing dinner. She ordered all of our food for us. It was like really special. And she said uh, at the end of it, she didn't say much, but at the end of it, she said, you know, I don't do music anymore. And before you start feeling sorry for me and getting weird about it, I'm a painter. I'm not sad. But it does bother me that I have these instruments sitting around that are so beautiful and no one plays them. So if you want to get a few young people together, some people together, you want to come over to my house and play some music one night let's do a jam and I was like all right so we did the very first night me and Hosier went over to Joni's house and we had dinner it was like Mexican food sat outside um 
And Joni, like, inadvertently tells the stories of her songs without telling us she's telling the stories of her songs. So if you know Joni, you know the story. And it's really amazing, you know. She'll talk about some a turbulent flight she was on. And I was like, man, turn this bird around. And you know, like, what she's talking about if you know Blue, you know. So it, that was fascinating part of the night. And then we kind of migrated into the living room around some instruments. And I played a song. I played a song of mine called Cannonball. And then Andrew Hosier played a song. And we're in the middle of these songs. And, like, apropos of nothing, Shaka Khan walks in. And Joni always has a plan. That's the thing about her. She wanted to, you know surprise us and throw us for a loop and and uh show us how it was done so she invited some people we didn't know about so shaka Khan walks in she starts throwing a fourth part harmony on top of this crosby stills and nash song i was singing and middle of that one herbie hancock walks in and he sits down at a piano and we are just hyperventilating me and andrew beside ourselves and the twins and my wife and joni's got this big knowing mischievous grin on her face and uh Herbie starts hovering on a chord, you know, and he's like, what are the kids going to do? You know, how are we going to how are we going to do this jam? We don't know what he's doing. It's just really diminished. And there's all these things happening and he's playing and everybody gets real quiet because we didn't know what was going to happen. And out of the middle of the room, we hear summertime and the living is easy. And it's Joni who's just opened her mouth and saying for the first time since her aneurysm seven years ago Incredible. herbie burst into tears everybody burst into tears and joni sat there grinning that mischievous grin and shaka goes uh the fish are jumping and the cotton is high and joni goes the fish are jumping and the cotton is high and the next thing you know joni's singing again and she sang for an hour and didn't stop and uh, so we've been going over there and jamming and Joni's been singing, and that's that's how it goes. So beautiful. You did growing up. You didn't listen to Joni. Mm -hmm. What was the what happened that got you into it? Well, T Bone Burnett played um, Blue for me when I was making the story. So that would have been two thousand five, two thousand six, and. Her voice was so high, and she got to the line that said, um, I want to renew you, I want to shampoo you, and I hated it. It was so heterosexual and submissive. It, it just bothered me. It was like, oh, this is, this is not tough. This is some other thing. This is feminine. And, um, and I wrote it off. And then all these years later, I met my wife, and we, um, we were holed up in a cabin together in northern Michigan and listening to music. And she brought Damien Rice and she brought Blue. And she put on Blue and I laughed and I said, oh, I don't really like Joni Mitchell, actually. And she got like deadly silent. And she was like, I don't actually know you like I thought I did if you can't get your head around Joni Mitchell. And I was like, well, it's just that I like tough singers and she's just not tough. And I hate the lyric, I want to renew you, I want to shampoo you. And she goes, really, she's not tough, like, because she sounds like a feminine woman? And I was like, well, it's, it's a lot more than that. And she goes, do you know what Little Green is about? And I said, no. And she told me, and she put on Little Green. And I broke down. I just completely broke down. And it, it changed not just the way I looked at Joni Mitchell, but the way I looked at women and 
femininity and toughness and how intertwined they really are. And so it put me in touch with my femininity in a new way. And so when I dove into Joni, I did a deep dive because I realized that I wasn't just fundamentally wrong about Joni Mitchell. I was fundamentally wrong about what I thought it meant to be tough. Beautiful story. It's amazing how small revelations can change our perception in great ways <laughs> that um, you wouldn't expect. You wouldn't expect you not lacking a lyric in a song. Yep. To frame the way you see the world. And just through that one breaking through that one change mm. opened up you opened up yourself to a whole different way of seeing the world. It in myself and it really Amazing. did. Amazing. Yeah, I'll never be the same uh writer after that either. Beautiful. Cool. Thanks for coming. All right. Cool. Thank you to Brandy Carlisle for stopping by Shangri-La and playing for Rick. Her latest album, the Grammy Award winning, by the way, I forgive you, is out now. Be sure to check it out along with the rest of our favorite Brandy songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mila Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.